0: Hello, I'm your host, Phil Gibson, and welcome to part two of this Biota episode about the life and career of Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov, one of the greatest scientists, geneticists, and botanists that ever lived. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to go back and listen to it to fully understand how we got here when this episode begins. But in case you don't want to do that right now, I'll give a quick summary of how we got to where we are where this episode starts. Nikolai Vavilov was a Russian botanist and geneticist who collected seeds of agricultural crops from around the world. He did this because he had this idea to build a seed bank, a collection of seeds from varieties of different crops. Vavilov knew that seeds weren't just a way to grow another plant. He knew that these seeds also contained genetic variation for those crops. He collected millions of seeds from around the world so that he could have the greatest collection of genetic variation to work with as he and his research team tried to breed better crops. For many years, Vavilov and his researchers at agricultural stations across the Soviet Union had been supported by Vladimir Lenin's government. But after Lenin's death, Joseph Stalin came to power. He rose from impoverished peasant to brutal totalitarian dictator of the USSR and had a very different view on how the country and its science should operate. As part of Stalin's regime, party loyalists, referred to as Vizhnyets, were pushed through the system and into powerful positions, regardless of their ability or experience. And that's how one of Stalin's henchmen, named Trofim Lysenko, came into power. In his biography about Vavilov, Dan Pringle writes how someone described Lysenko this way, quote, If one is to judge a man by first impression, Lysenko gives one the feeling of a toothache, end quote, or another, quote, All one remembers is his look, creeping along the earth as if, at the very least, he was ready to do someone in. End quote. Lysenko was a worker at an agricultural research station, and he had shown skill with growing plants. However, when the Soviet propaganda machine learned about him, they transformed him into their ideal Soviet scientist. He had no formal education in botany or agriculture, but... He conducted some mildly interesting experiments which, because he had no knowledge of the literature, he passed off as his great discoveries. The Soviet newspaper Pravda hailed this new scientist and his findings, and because Lysenko was aware of how powerful government and party support were, he used it to emerge as the Communist Party's ideologically preferred agricultural researcher. Vavilov became aware of Lysenko and his popularity, and he welcomed him into the research group as he was directed by his superiors. Despite many attempts to get Lysenko to at least read a few scientific papers and learn the basics of genetics and crop breeding, Lysenko resisted. He would not even acknowledge that his experiment that got Stalin's attention had actually been published by another researcher years earlier, even whenever Vavilov showed him the actual paper. The unsmiling, self-promoting poster boy for Stalinist pseudoscience had an unsettling effect on everyone. Lysenko didn't care. He knew the only assistance he needed came from the handlers Stalin sent from Moscow to help him win the propaganda and the ideological war that they were about to wage on Vavilov, his loyal research team, and science itself. So what did Lysenko believe when it came to science? He and other scientists at the time thought the environment was the main factor that drove variation and evolutionary change. They thought that the environment changed organisms and gave them heritable traits to be passed on to their offspring. You see, Lysenko thought that he could he could train plants. Genetics was foolishness to him. Lysenko said that he had proven this by exposing plants to different temperatures and making them change flowering behavior. What he had, quote, discovered, unquote, was the process botanists and gardeners had known about for years. It's called vernalization, and it's something that happens when you expose a plant to cold temperatures, and it can trigger different types of growth responses. Now, some plants use this as a cue to start flowering or break seed dormancy or some other process. Lysenko said this was a heritable change in the plant that could cause spring flowering species to flower in the fall or cold intolerant crops to suddenly become frost tolerant. It's Lamarck's acquired characteristics theory in new clothes, and it's just not how inheritance works. Despite his position at the head of the research institutes, Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov was in no position to point out this fundamental biological error to Lysenko and correct his thinking. No, not in Stalin's regime, instead, Vavilov tolerated Lysenko and did his best to protect his scientists at the different research stations. But more party loyalists began to replace researchers that were being fired or arrested by the Soviet police. Eventually, in 1936, Vavilov was called to defend genetics in front of the leading Soviet agricultural commissioners who were more interested in party loyalty than scientific fact. Stalin was furious with the repeated series of agricultural failures that were causing famine and starvation throughout the country. Stalin's collectivization of society meant that food grown in rural regions was then transported to the cities to feed the workers and likely keep revolt there under control. And at the same time, the farmers starved. It was a failure and disaster because Stalin had ordered the agricultural researchers to make outrageous gains and and increase agricultural output or improve crops in just two or four years based on Lysenko's foolish ignorance of basic botany and genetics. I mean, at the same time, even the most experienced genetic researchers could maybe breed the improvements they needed in 10 to 12 years. But two? That's ridiculous. Especially when your leading so-called scientists don't even accept genetics. What had led to this crisis, in part, is that everyone believed Lysenko's lies. Lysenko lied about crop yields. He lied about how exposing his plants to different conditions trained them to grow differently. Lysenko's publications, which were likely ghostwritten by Soviet handlers, had less to do with botany and more to do with communist ideology. Because they based science on ideology and not reality, this pseudoscience named Lysenkoism led to repeated crop failures and widespread starvation. When politics drives scientists to lie about facts, it never ends well. Stalin and Lysenko saw famine devastating the USSR, and they desperately needed a scapegoat. That's why, in 1936, Vavilov and his research group were called to argue the case for genetics, while Lysenko and his toadies argued for acquired characteristics. Vavilov and his team used data, slides, microscopes, evidence to explain that genetics was real. This wasn't Vavilov's first experience defending science, however. Once, as a young scientist traveling by train to his first scientific conference, Vavilov presided over a mock trial to determine whether genetics or environment were more important in crop improvement and breeding. Vavilov's passionate defense of Mendelism and how genetics were required for successful crop improvement and breeding may have won a victory that day, But these were much, much darker times now. Despite the overwhelming body of scientific data and evidence that Vavilov brought to the table, the ideology-filled garbage that spewed from Lysenko's mouth held greater influence in this kangaroo court. Even when questioned, Lysenko proclaimed scientific truth just because he believed something. Now it's important to realize that genetics was exactly counter to Stalinism. If genetics meant that some plants were inherently better than others based on inherited genetic traits, well, that would mean, at least in Stalin's twisted worldview, that some humans would be genetically better than others based on their inherited traits too. And that was not consistent with his ideology. I will point out here, that this idea of genetic superiority in some people over others is the foundation of eugenics, a false and twisted idea put forth and believed by some truly disgusting people and their followers. Take Adolf Hitler, for example. So, although Stalin was against eugenics, he had some other serious shortcomings. To Stalin and his loyalists, the environment where one lives is what matters, not the genes you inherit. To them, that idea was too much like saying that the nobility were inherently better than the proletariat. When the totalitarian dictator believed something like that, the outcome of this trial was never in doubt. A second trial was arranged in 1939 to take place between Vavilov and one of Lysenko's workers. Despite Vavilov's attempts to reconcile their differences, Lysenko used this as an opportunity to humiliate Vavilov. He ridiculed his belief in genes. Lysenko and his confederates linked belief in genetics to being exactly the same as believing in eugenics. He painted Vavilov as a fool. At one point, Lysenko mocked Vavilov because Vavilov admitted he could not genetically differentiate a pea from a lentil, something that Lysenko said he could just do with his tongue. Lysenko and the regime labeled Vavilov as an enemy of science and an enemy of the people who is only interested in his personal glory Wasting money on trips to collect his silly seeds, the politicians who listened to the debate decided, quote, evolution could not have occurred without the inheritance of acquired characteristics, end quote. Politicians and ideology now determined scientific truth in the USSR. Not science, not reason, not data, logic, or any of the other hallmarks of science. This was the moment it became evident that Soviet agriculture was dying on the vine. To Stalin and his cronies, Vavilov wasn't just now becoming a problematic scientist. He was the subject of state security operational file number 006854 that had begun in 1930. For many years, the Soviet government would collect information on Vavilov, where he traveled, who he met with when he traveled. The file contained false information shared by Vavilov's enemies as well. The file contained multiple reports of Vavilov interacting with an anti-Soviet group that did not even exist, and the government knew it because they had made up this fake organization. Amidst all of this bogus evidence, there was no account of how Vavilov worked to purchase high-quality seeds abroad and send them back to Russia. No mention of how he tried to lure scientists who had left Russia to return home. Not a word about how, despite being offered opportunities to stay in other countries that had much better financial resources to support his work, he never accepted them. Regardless, Stalin wanted Vavilov gone, but he had to be careful because he knew that the botanist had an incredible reputation around the world. An incorrect report of Vavilov's arrest once even sparked an international outrage. So Stalin waited until he could wait no longer. Vavilov had begun to make too many comments that suggested Stalin and his advisors had made mistakes in guiding agriculture, and that had resulted in the current famine. For example, Stalin set a target for increasing grain yields from 80,000 to 100,000 million kilograms. Vavilov encouraged farmers, telling them how they had already grown larger amounts, 160,000 kilograms and more, on the same land when the Tsar and even Lenin were in power. Stalin took this as criticism and summoned Vavilov to the Kremlin. In this meeting, Stalin puffed his pipe and looked Vavilov in the eye. And according to Vavilov biographer Gary Naban, Stalin said, quote, Academician Vavilov, why do you have these empty dreams? Just help us get a dependable harvest of 80,000 million kilos. That's enough for us. End quote. Stalin exited the room, leaving a trail of acrid smoke behind him. At another time, Vavilov had even gone so far as to yell at Lysenko within earshot of colleagues and blamed Lysenko's ignorance for the crop failures. And in another meeting of Vavilov and his researchers, and and I don't know if Lysenko was there or not, but I would predict that there was at least one Kremlin spy in the room, Vavilov stood and clearly said to all those assembled, quote, we shall go into the pyre, we shall burn, but we will not retreat from our convictions. End quote. It was now just a matter of time. His fate was sealed. Vavilov had already been restricted from international travel. Stalin had begun tightening his grip on the scientist. As the famine raged, Stalin needed to make an example of someone to cover for his regime's colossal failures. So they sent Vavilov on an expedition to the Ukraine. While there, four Soviet agents arrived in the characteristic black sedans to bring Vavilov back to Moscow for what they said was an important meeting. Nikolai knew this day was coming. Even before the expedition, he had begun calling his wife when he arrived at work and when he left to return home each day in case he was to suddenly disappear as had happened to other scientists. He didn't want her or his second son Yuri to worry. But now it was happening when he was far from home and he had no way to tell his wife he would not be returning home ever again. What happened next is horrific. I won't go into detail except to say that from August 10, 1940, until the so-called trial on July 9, 1941, Vavilov endured over 1,700 hours of interrogation, often for 10 to 13 hours at a time, at the hand of one of Stalin's specialists at securing confessions. But Vavilov never broke. He admitted to nothing they accused him of. He never betrayed his colleagues, his science, or the plants he loved. How could he? Vavilov had worked his whole life to feed the Soviet people. He could never have sabotaged experiments or done any of the things he was accused of. But on July 9, 1940, in less than five minutes, a tribunal of three generals found Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov guilty of treason, espionage, sabotage, destroying crops, and other crimes against the Soviet state, party, and people. He was sentenced to be executed by firing squad. In a Soviet prison at age 53, Vavilov asked for mercy and submitted an appeal, anything to let him return home to his plants and family and life. The state turned down this appeal, but a second was eventually granted to allow Vavilov to perhaps teach biology or agriculture, or maybe work on a prison farm. It looked like he might get out and live, but we have one more villain in this story to make Vavilov's life even worse, Adolf Hitler. The Nazi push on Moscow had arrived. Vavilov and other prisoners were moved to another prison, and in this instance, the twist of fate took Vavilov to Saratov prison, in the exact same town where he had begun his illustrious career. Like the other prisoners in Saratov, Nikolai suffered. He endured the harsh, cruel, inhumane treatment being heaped on them by false testimony, lies, and for Nikolai, the hatred of an incompetent gardener who now ruled Soviet agriculture with pseudoscience. Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov survived for two years at Saratov Prison, and then on January 26, 1943, the man who had worked his entire life to feed the people died of starvation. He had become a martyr for genetics. Vavilov's second wife, Yelena, and his son with her, Yuri, they never learned what happened to Nikolai until much later. The war had disrupted their lives, and when Nikolai died, they were actually living in Saratov, about a 15-minute walk from where he languished in prison. As family of a convicted enemy of the state, they lost everything. Nikolai's brother Sergei had risen to prominence as a leading physicist in the USSR, and he helped them when he could, but Sergei suffered too. Stalin put Sergei in charge of removing his brother's name and all records of his existence from Soviet science. Stalin put Sergei in charge of erasing his brother. Nikolai's oldest son, Oleg, from his first wife Katya, he began to gather information on his father's fate and he eventually found out what happened. Unfortunately, Oleg fell victim to an accident while skiing. When his body was reluctantly recovered from an avalanche by the Soviet officials, The autopsy showed that he had been hit in the head with an ice axe. No one asked any more questions after that. Although that was the end of the great botanist's life, it's really not the end of Vavilov's story. Eventually, Stalin and Lysenko were proven to be incredibly wrong, and it was shown that they didn't have the slightest idea what they had in their possession. Let me explain. Stalin and his regime considered Vavilov's seed collection and his efforts to be foolish, but other people had a different idea about that. For example, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. One of the reasons the Nazis wanted to capture Leningrad, which is now known as St. Petersburg, was that is where Vavilov's collection of seeds and the materials from different crop species were stored, and Hitler wanted them. Plants are the chemical factories that make many complex molecules that humans just can't synthesize as easily as a plant can, and that makes the seeds that produce those plants incredibly valuable and nations throughout history have done just about anything to get seeds that they wanted or protect the seeds that they had. Recognizing the importance of Vavilov's work, some countries, the United States included, started sending botanists out to follow Vavilov's expeditions and find out just what he was doing and collecting. The genetic resources Vavilov had collected were valued by the Nazis just as much as the paintings that were in the Hermitage, and the Soviets were hurriedly trying to get those evacuated out and hidden in other places. The Nazis even had a botanist named Heinz Brucker, who headed a special genetics and crop breeding unit in the regime. He was also part of a specially trained unit of SS soldiers called the SS Samo or the Russian Collector Commandos, who were trained specifically in how to invade agricultural stations and steal their genetic resources in the seed banks, and then the Nazis would use these for their own crop improvement. That's the magnitude of Vavilov's work and Stalin's ignorance. The seed bank was considered a strategically valuable resource, specifically targeted by their enemies. But the Soviets did nothing to protect it. However, some incredibly brave botanists did. The Nazis laid siege on Leningrad for about two and a half years, and 1.5 million residents of that city died. Among them were researchers in Vavilov's seed bank. As the people of Leningrad starved, the scientists protected the seed bank from the starving people of Leningrad, the Nazis, and even the rats that had overrun the city. The researchers knew these seeds could not be recollected. They were precious, unique, never to be found again. The researchers at the seed bank tended them, and 28 researchers themselves died of starvation protecting rather than eating the precious seeds left in their care. Think about that. They were surrounded by seed that could have saved their lives, but they didn't eat them. As the siege raged outside, nine remaining scientists blockaded themselves in the basement of the seed bank in a final desperate act to save the most precious and rare specimens. None of them survived, but the seeds did. Those scientists are without a doubt heroes. Fortunately, Stalin died, and eventually Vavilov's legacy was, as the Soviets say, rehabilitated. His accomplishments were rightfully recognized, and the the institute where he once worked now bears his name as the All-Union N.I. Vavilov Institute of Plant Industry. His colleagues who defended and gave everything to protect the seeds are still remembered there with honor. Vavilov is widely recognized as a visionary by scientists worldwide. In his time, Vavilov was awarded honorary membership in the Botanical Society of America, the Linnaean Society of London, the Indian Academy of Sciences, the Royal Scottish Academy, the New York Geographic Society, the Mexican Society of Agronomy, the Natural Sciences Academy of Spain, and special foreign membership in scientific societies in Czechoslovakia and Germany. As for Lysenko, somehow he remained in power until Stalin's successor Khrushchev was removed. Lysenko eventually lost position and power, never admitting he was wrong or his role as an accomplice in Vavilov's murder by the state. He was ostracized, ignored. People even avoided him in the cafeteria at work. He died in 1976. Good riddance as far as I'm concerned. But Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov has been celebrated and returned to his rightful place in Russian scientific history. His papers and records were eventually published, and his seed collection is still one of the best in the world. His ideas about native crop genetic resources and the need to conserve them as much as any species now guide conservation efforts worldwide. Nikolai Vavilov's vision is what led to the establishment of the Svalbard Seed Bank, sometimes referred to as the Doomsday Seed Bank. It houses collections of agricultural seeds from varieties of crops around the world, and it holds them deep below ground above the Arctic Circle. Think of this as an insurance policy in case something happens to world agriculture and we need seeds to restart things worldwide or just at a single location. And don't think that kind of thing is out of the question. Vavilov's own collections were once used to reintroduce a variety of wheat back into Ethiopia where war had devastated all crops. Vavilov's seeds were the only source for that locally adapted variety and they used his seeds to reintroduce that variety back into its home to feed those people. Crop genetic diversity is something we must preserve and protect as we would any other irreplaceable natural resource. We need that genetic diversity to support the agricultural systems that we depend on for our own species survival. Many years after Vavilov disappeared into a Soviet prison, his backpack from that final expedition was found at the seed bank in St. Petersburg. In it was Vavilov's last seed collection. He'd collected a species of wheat with many primitive characteristics. Eventually, botanists determined that this specimen represented the oldest known species of wheat, and it had all of the traits Vavilov had predicted it would have. Vavilov's seeds and notebooks are now considered treasures that record places and growing conditions from plants and farms and cultures that no longer exist. His work provides us with the only record of the world of agriculture before it became dominated by international corporations and genetically modified crops. Vavilov's collection of genetic variation grows more valuable every day as genetic erosion occurs due to farmers not growing their local varieties but instead growing commercially produced seeds. Vavilov's seeds are all we have left of these ancient local varieties and their unique genetic features for some crops. And realize, Vavilov didn't just collect those seeds. He collected the local knowledge farmers amassed over generations on how to grow them. In many ways, the work of Nikolai Vavilov has touched millions of human lives worldwide, and it still does every day, even yours and mine. If I ever got the ability to pick a group of people from history to join me for dinner, I guarantee you that I would make a place at that table for Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov. He championed genetics, developed two important scientific theories, and established a world-class seed bank which has likely saved millions from starvation. To paraphrase what one scientist said, given his accomplishments, Vavilov should be as famous as Darwin. I'm Phil Gibson and this concludes my summertime episode on Nikolai Vavilov, the plant hunter. I again want to acknowledge my two primary resources, First, The Murder of Nikolai Vavilov by Peter Pringle and Where Our Food Comes From, Retracing Nikolai Vavilov's Quest to End Famine by Gary Naban. I also consulted several translations of Vavilov's work to just get a feel for what he was like as a botanist. I also recommend reading those. Thanks as always to Terry Gibson for help with episode development. I also want to thank Dr. Jan Linhart who first told me about Vavilov years ago. And so, as always. Thanks for listening, have a great day, and take care of your genetic material. Biota is a production of Under the Juniper Studios. All opinions expressed are those of the author alone. Except for the ones about Lysenko, nobody likes him.